Welcome to Language Made Difficult, a harmonious part of the SpecGram podcast. I'm Trey Jones, and this Linguistics Roundtable Telesymposium is coming to you from our virtual conference center, hosted via satellite uplink from a sunken submarine at the bottom of Lake Titicaca in Peru and or Bolivia. Joining me today are the rest of the Ling Nerds, Bill Spruill. Hey. Keith Slater. Great to be with you. And Sherry Wells Jensen. Hi there. Also joining us again on the program is Madalena Cruz Ferreira. Welcome back, Madalena. Thanks for visiting us again. Thank you very much. Lovely to be here. All right, so let's start off with some lies, damn lies, and linguistics. So our theme today is how badly do you need that meaning, since we don't do a lot of semantics. (laughs) There's a reason for that. (laughs) (laughs) And to celebrate our 30th episode, I'm going to give you the tricky and arbitrary that you always accuse me of. So (laughs) (laughs) The tricky and arbitrary puzzle? Okay, hit us with it. We're up to it. Item number one. Rapa Nui, the language of Easter Island, has a word, hakanukanuka, which means to give back to someone the same insults they gave you. Item number two, Klinkit, a language of the Pacific Northwest, has a word, naskadoshu, for using an inappropriate but convenient tool for a job. Item number three, Mele has a word, polong, for the hollow space under something like a table or a house. All right, so the thing I learned from last time is that we can't have Bill go early. <laughs> Somebody who's not Bill, go first. I'll go first. All right. Rapa Nui, the word means to give back to someone the same insults they gave you. That's a word we need. So I want that to be true. So I'm going to say it is true. And I think that's not the English version of it, but we need that word in English, but that was too long. (laughs) It needs to be just nuka or something. Anyway, okay. So tlingit, the word means an inappropriate but convenient tool for a job. This is false. The word for that is duct tape. It's a borrowing. And uh, (laughs) so I'm going to call that one false. And the Malay word for the hollow space under something, like a table or a house. What you meant to say is not that the table or the house is the hollow space, but it's the space under, under something. a table or a house. Yep. Is that what you meant? Yeah. The space is just an epiphenomenon. There's not actually a word for the space because it's the thing that's there. However, this sounds a lot like a Chinese word for empty. So I'm going to say it's a borrowing and therefore true. So I think two is the false one. Okay. Sherry? Keith has such a good record, <laughs> so I'm tempted. So this <laughs> just again, follow I, along like sheep. <laughs> I, bah, you know the thing is this hakanukanuka word. I like it, Keith, that you said it should be true, and I want it to be true. Therefore, it's true. I learned that because from you. <laughs> I know, and it was brilliant. Really, so I'm going to say that's true. Besides, that looks like a prefix haka, and you got to reduplication. I'm so I'm not even going to be mad if I'm wrong. I just I just really want that to be the right one. I really do. Okay. If it's false, I'm just going to travel to Rapa Nui and make them start saying it. <laughs> okay. Tlingit. Tlingit. What is that word again in Tlingit? Nash. I just want to see if you can pronounce it the same way twice in a row, Trey. <laughs> Naskadoshu. Uh, Naskadosu. No, Dashu. Yeah. Nah, see, you know, see, Doshu or Dosu? That's going to be what I'm going to... Hmm. Boy, I don't know. My native speaker Tlingit intuition is not standing me in good stead here. Yeah, I sort of like that one. I sort of do. But I like kolong better because I think that really is a word that it seems to me like if there were, you know, those lists of words we should have, it seems like kolong really. That's simple. But that was on there. So they're all three true, aren't they? Oh, gosh. (laughs) At some abstract level, sure. Yeah. Because Trey pronounced it two different ways. (sighs) I'm going to say that number two is the false one. Yes, yes. We're going to win. I'm agreeing with Keith, which I don't do. So, (laughs) and I think because you had such a good reason for number one, Keith, I'm going to agree with you that it's number two that's false. Okay. All right. So, Bill? Okay. Now, the problem with this is all three of these sound believable. 
That was his goal. Indeed. Yeah. And I have to say, number two, even if it's not the case, I want this word so I can use it for parts of speech. (laughs) (laughs) Because it's exactly what we do with labels like noun and verb when we use them for other languages. It's nazgadoshu, or however that's pronounced. Nazgul, did you say? (laughs) Stop it. Well, that kind of works, too. That kind of works, too. The Rapa Nui one sounds quite believable because that kind of reduplicated factor at the end looks like something that could be used iconically for something that could bounce back at somebody. And it's not like that semantic domain is that weird. Old Norse had a term specifically for an insult battle. It was fluting or something like that. So number one sounds okay. Number two, I really want to be true number three (laughs) number three it sounds perfectly believable but i don't really want it to be true the same way i want two to be true and i don't have that reduplication boost it gets for number one so i'm going to say number three is the false one okay i like the reasoning even if i disagree with your finding i just like (laughs) i like that it's all about what pleases me all right madalena you've heard them Okay, my turn, yeah. I agree with what Bill said, that all three are very believable. And I also agree that that's the whole point, right? They should all be believable. (laughs) So let me start with the third one. A word for the hollow space under something. I know a couple of other languages that have a word for that. So I think it's quite believable that Malay has one as well. So that one is true. It's a useful concept to be able to use this one. Then number two... Using an inappropriate but convenient tool for a job. This one sounds very credible to me as well. I was thinking when I first read this, I thought of a word like ersatz. It doesn't mean that it's inappropriate, right? But it's something that you substitute may not be exactly the thing that you're looking for, but it does the job. And I liked Bill's explanation about this is what we do with languages. Absolutely. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So this first one sounds a bit too neat to me. I mean, you give back to someone the same answers they give to you. There's wonderful reduplication, despite the effects it has on Sherry. (laughs) <laughs> and that tricky saka something or other, it's too neat. I'm not a speaker of Rapa Nui, obviously, right? But <laughs> if I want to insult somebody back, I just do it. I don't need a word for it. <laughs> you don't need a word for it. <laughs> but yeah. if it was awesome, then you describe it later, right? <laughs> yeah, this is water cooler talk. It was so great. I got him with a haka nuka nuka. I need to haka oh. you again. Yes, right. Yeah, so I think number one is false. Okay. Mm-hmm. So let's see. Which one should I start with? So I will tell you that the incorrect word is actually a real word in that language. And the incorrect definition is a definition from Sniglets. Do you guys remember these from back in the day? <laughs> Sniglets. Yes. <laughs> yes. Okay. There was this comedian, Rich Hall, who would make up words that ought to exist in English. Yes. And so that was the maximally tricky thing I could think of. And so the word that he made up was blithwapping, which is when you use anything but a hammer as a hammer to hammer in a nail. So, in fact, the clinket word is incorrect. So, woohoo! Yay! <laughs> yay! I should have known it had too many vowels to be clinket. No, no, <laughs> yes. it is. Is this a clinket word? It's the number eight. <laughs> I knew that. <laughs> and was duct tape in the dictionary you consulted? I did not look up duct tape to see if it was in there. Uh, I'll Google it. <laughs> so, so Keith and Sherry got them right, and Bill and Madalena did not. 
Hakka nuka nuka. Yes. That's one of those things that we don't know if it's a noun or a verb, right? Because it's Rapanui, so we can't know. Right. I'm going to have trouble working this into my conversation since I don't know. Well, as we discussed last time, just bring it into English, brutally nativize it, and do whatever you want with it. Yeah, exactly. Drop the accents. (laughs) (laughs) Just just use it. I'm now wondering if that's related to that Maori term, haka. Haka. Mm. I thought of that. Mm. But I didn't know where to go with it. If I was going to construct something, that would be perfect, right? Because nuka sounds like you're nuking someone. Yes, right. With the haka. Right. Uh, yes. Yeah. Well, if we anglicize it, then you can talk about a haka nuka nuka nu, <laughs> which is like an extremely effective one. Yeah, that would be good if you gave somebody back the same kind of insult, but did it better than they did. Right. Mm. You're saying there were words for this in Old Norse. There are two that I know in English. One is a, a drop war. That's what we called it in middle school. And among, I think, the hip-hop crowd, it's playing the dozens. The term playing the dozens is a lot older than hip-hop. Well, yeah, but that's where it seems to come up the most. But anyway, that would be it, right? So somebody says a your mama joke, and then you give them back a better your mama joke. That's outdoing them. It'd be a nuclear haka-nuka-nuka. And this has really got to be in the next ukulele hit, right? This word, (laughs) haka-nuka-nuka on the ukulele. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Haka-nuka. Anyway, we have good news for... Sherry and Keith with their scores. So Sherry is now in first place with 63%, with Bill right behind with 60%. I now have 50%. Keith is up to 40%. Yay! And our guests have fallen to 38%. Oh, I'm ahead of somebody. (laughs) So I guess that's enough lies, damn lies, and linguistics. We'll be right back with some linguistic news after a word from our sponsor. Language Made Difficult is brought to you by Applied Warfism Incorporated. Are you tired of those unannounced three-week visits by your mother-in-law, but unable to think of a legal way to prevent them? Do you wish your boss would shut up already about the project that's a little overdue? The Applied Warfism Center has your answer. Just write for information about sponsoring the offending person in our excellent programs for Classical Latin, Homeric Greek, Hittite, or Old Norse. As Herodotus once said, he, speaking the tongue of the deceased, must himself, on the one hand, antecedent thereunto, have passed away. For more information, write to Applied Warfism Incorporated, Hartford, Connecticut. Welcome back to Language Made Difficult. In today's news, we have, well, linguists can't say a story about a prescriptive has gone bad because we typically regard prescriptivism as bad anyway, but we can at least say prescriptivism gone much, much worse. <laughs> It's a story from Salem, Oregon, about a gentleman who was so incensed at what he viewed as a spelling error on the sign in front of the State of Oregon Teacher Standards and Practices Commission. The sign, by the way, has A-N instead of A-N-D, that he walked in with a pressure cooker with wires attached to it and told people it was a bomb. Now, fortunately for everyone involved, it was not. He was apprehended. The article mentioned that it was an attention-seeking behavior. If you know anything about the history of English grammar, attention-seeking behavior kind of describes the whole enterprise. So that's not unusual. (laughs) But I wanted to talk about this because what it says about culture, number one, 
this poor gentleman becoming so angry that he would do this over a simple problem on a sign. Number two, that he could fail to realize that what was going on was not a misspelling of and, it was the use of an instead of and, which of course is much worse. (laughs) (laughs) And so I would like to put this out for discussion as linguists, we're used to trying to talk to students about prescriptivism, but how do we talk to people about psychotic prescriptivism? Mm. That sounds like a job for the psycholinguists. <laughs> I'm just so taken with the noun phrase psychotic prescriptivism that I'm completely wordless. <laughs> well, maybe hyper proscriptivism. No, 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 no. Psych no 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 psychotic prescriptivism. You have to call it what it is. Psychotic I just love prescriptivism that. is certainly colorful. I don't know what to do about it, but maybe we could prevent it if we could get more people to understand the standard linguistic difference between competence and performance. I always tell people I'm not a bad speller, but there are lots of misspelled things in my emails because I can't type. (laughs) (laughs) That's just the truth. And the sign wasn't badly spelled. It was badly maintained. You can tell by looking at the picture that not only has the D been rubbed off, but some of the letters underneath have been damaged. Mm. So if we could just get him to understand the difference here and say, you know, it's not that they don't know how to spell and. They just made a mistake. And maybe it could be a little more forgiving. Mm. You know, I think the answer to this is actually lack of multilingualism. Because if this guy had had the proper multilinguistic background, he would have known exactly what to do, which was to write them an angry note with several misspellings in it and deliver it to them. And then he could have said, hey, it's a haka nuka nuka. (laughs) And then he would have felt better. Did you guys catch the bit about how he said his bomb didn't go off because he downloaded instructions from the internet and they were full of misspellings? Yeah. Yes. We did notice that. Well, Bill didn't mention it, but threatening to bomb someone is a terrible thing and is totally inappropriate. But it really sounds like a master level troll here. It's like, I would blow you up for misspelling, but (laughs) misspellings in my bomb instructions rendered my bomb ineffectual. (laughs) Right. I think actually that's an argument for less literacy. (laughs) and and poor spelling right it's an argument for more spelling mistakes that's right Mm -hmm. yeah it will prevent people from making functioning bombs we just have more misspellings more misspellings that's right (laughs) and english is a great language for that because our orthography is horrible so being a bad speller is actually like a peacemaking thing that makes (laughs) me feel so much better about my life (laughs) (laughs) yeah i was wondering about that because he did say that he was on a mission didn't he Mm mm-hmm And I thought, if he is on a mission, what's the point of bombing a building? He wants to bomb the people who misspelled the thing, right? Right. So I wasn't sure about what kind of mission he was on. I mean, is he going to bomb every single thing that's been misspelled (laughs) all over the place or every single person who has misspelled anything? Suddenly, greengrocers everywhere cower in fear. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) They're misplaced apostrophes. (laughs) Yeah, starting with that, for example. Well, we don't know if he has a punctuation issue or just a spelling issue. I mean, he should clarify that, really. Well, the sign didn't have punctuation on it. So what he was reacting to was specifically what he perceived as not having the D there, etc. That term psychotic prescriptivism was probably going a bit too far because this seems to be a different kind of problem. I kind of feel sorry for the guy because you figure this was something where he's just out of it or there was a bunch of stuff going on and this snapped him or something like that. But there's this completely separate issue 
which is this sort of attitude that if you get really angry about somebody's spelling mistake or punctuation or something, that that's more of a problem with their spelling or punctuation than it is with you. (laughs) Right? We would hope that there'd be this kind of circuit breaker where people could sort of stop for a second and say, wait a minute, I'm getting angry about this punctuation thing. Is that a rational response here? I blame the internet. Well, there's that. There's the point that school systems sometimes do seem like they're putting so much effort into convincing people to pay attention to spelling and punctuation that you then have this overshot effect where it's, well, 20% of the students needed more attention drawn to this, so they would take it seriously. But then there's the 0.005% that took it way too seriously, (laughs) right? Mm. So negotiating that kind of balance is difficult, but at the same time, it has to be. Hmm. I think it's not our education system so much as, again, I blame the internet, grammar Nazis and just the flame wars over the dumbest things about, I mean, it's worse than our fights about comma placement. Well, those are perfectly legitimate. (laughs) (laughs) That's an issue worth dying over. (laughs) (sighs) Yeah, it's the kind of attitude that makes you think you're entitled to take action against people who do things differently from what you do. So maybe the answer is teachers should say to kids, well, spell things any way you want, but don't spell them the secret, prescriptively correct way. Then all the kids would want to spell it right, and they wouldn't even notice if they were misspelled, maybe. I guess that's all we're going to get out of discussing this sad state of affairs. So we will return in a moment with a discussion of our all-time favorite Specgram articles. But first, a word from our sponsor. Language Made Difficult is not brought to you by the American Philological Association, the Poetics and Linguistics Association, nor the International Council of Onomastic Sciences. Welcome back to Language Made Difficult. Well, we Ling nerds are pretty sure that Specgram is the greatest journal that's ever been produced. It's definitely greater than Linguistic Inquiry or the International Journal of the Sociology of Language or any of those big name ones, language, those sorts of things. But one morning this week, after singing the Specgram anthem like we do every morning with the start work, we started reminiscing about our all-time favorite Specgram articles. And then we realized that our devoted language-made difficult listeners are missing out. They probably don't even realize which are the best of the best among Specgram's myriads of articles. So we've decided to guide your future reading by sharing our views, which of Specgram's articles are truly the best. In a few minutes, you'll know. So who'd like to start out by telling us your absolute favorites? Everyone at once. Uh, Bill? <laughs> yeah, that, 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 it's a hard decision, frankly. Madeline. Um, <laughs> am, I, am I next? <laughs> yeah, we're skipping Bill. <laughs> I'm going to be very horrible and say that my absolute favorite article all time in Spacram is my own. <laughs> the Bilema in the Bilingual Brain. And I'm going to tell you why. Because in this article, I present empirical findings, and I insist and repeat empirical findings, thus unquestionable findings, showing that multilingualism, contrary to what Sherry was saying just a moment ago, is not good for you. It seriously impairs the human brain. (laughs) And in the article, not only I show that multilingualism is bad for you, I also show how the disorder is caused. 
Multilingualism has been defined in many, many different, funny, contradictory ways, but it all boils down to one thing. It's a feature of individuals, obviously. It's not a feature of countries, or schools, or languages, or internet pages, or whatever. I'm sick and tired of institutions being claimed to be a multilingual. They're not. It's individuals, right? And my study shows, I'll admit it's a rather extreme case. My subject was called Richard III, and it shows... One example of what multilematic brains do to their users, they completely lose hold of their ability to use any of their languages. And the proof is that they can't cope with experimental techniques, which are time-honored, peer-reviewed, and so on and so forth, <laughs> well-known <laughs> well known to tell the difference between healthy and disordered brains. And they can do this, these experiments from linguistic production, perception, and interpretation. So go and have a look at the article. It's <laughs> brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. <laughs> Absolutely brilliant. Uh, of course. I mean, what else would you expect coming from me, obviously? <laughs> right? <laughs> so disordered brains, in other words, are multilingual brains and vice versa. My study concerned multilingualism with English because multilingualism without English is inconceivable. <laughs> it's a known fact, also empirically proven, that everybody speaks at least English. <laughs> so I think this article is the ultimate proof, and a quite recent one. It's just a couple of years old. It's very recent research that in case you still doubt it, multilingualism is not good for you. And by the way, if you happen to see other publications in other places with somebody with a name that is, sounds and looks exactly like mine, it's somebody impersonating me. <laughs> I only publish in speculative grammarian. <laughs> As do we all. <laughs> As do we all. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, Bill, let's give you another shot at it. <laughs> the problem is, and, and this extends to the same thing happens if you say, well, what's your favorite band? What's your favorite movie? It's like it depends on what your mood is that day and what you're working on. So a couple of the high points would include for focus on science, the article on linguistic topology, because number one, it recognizes that the most important point of empiricism is having a rectangular matrix of numbers. <laughs> <laughs> that right there the empiricism is not just in the numbers it's in the rectangularity of it <laughs> okay right. because nothing says stability like 90 degree angles <laughs> <laughs> it's also particularly good because it had the right values in the matrix i mean you can look at it and they're obviously right <laughs> And then the joking part, where they matched it accurately onto shapes, but made them the wrong shades. <laughs> I thought that if it was completely overboard, openly funny, then it's not really funny. Like if they had had a triangular matrix or some kind of funky downward branching tree thing or something like that, then it would be too obviously a joke. But to have everything else exactly correct, but then switch the colors, I think was a good move. <laughs> I'm sure it was all done by plan, nothing accidental. <laughs> and then if you're in a more philological mood, of course, although you never admit to that on a campus, <laughs> there's the mytholingual creatures, particularly because 
The fact that it's a remapping of the topology article (laughs) is a particularly good point. I mean, each of those is, of course, a topological reanalysis of a shape from the table. (laughs) You know, I had forgotten how funny that one is. And just right now it's hanging outside my office door. And crowds of students stand around laughing and looking at it. It's, it's really, uh, it's a popular one. Have any of the students tried to figure out what the square roots of each of those are yet? <laughs> <laughs> we lost a couple of students last week uh, <laughs> doing that very thing. A couple guys out there with abacuses, you know, it's terrible. Abaki. Abakai? Abacoma? Abacasai. I think an abacoma <laughs> is listening to uh, too much 70s pop. <laughs> Sherry, what what's your favorite or what are some of your favorites? Well, okay. So I just really should confess that I'm not allowed to read Spectrum anymore after my grad students figured out that this podcast would give them answers to comps questions. <laughs> um, and so they thought that maybe some of those might be found in speculative grammar as well. So I'm actually forbidden <laughs> to read this anymore. So I had to sneak. And so I did what everybody does when they're looking for their favorite article, which is hit the random article button. <laughs> and I landed on this gem, improving L2 performance with Piraha, Shigudo, and simple English, the effect of syntactic and semantic priming on successful L2 communication. I love this article. This is the best article ever written. Um, <laughs> it comes out of Jules Verne University, which is where I will have to go and work if I you know, get caught reading Specgram one more time when I'm supposed to be grading papers and doing other things. The title has a colon in it, which is required for <laughs> scientific accuracy. I like this article so much. It's got lots and lots of references in it, which looks really scientific. And that aids me in not having to read the whole thing because I know it's scientific because it had 25 references. 25. (laughs) Very important. And it looked like if I'd skimmed down further that there might have been a chart. Maybe it was even a rectangular chart. You know, I'm pretty sure there was one there. Or there might have been anyway if I'd read all the way down. And somewhere in the article, it had this line in it. It says, a lack of even a working knowledge of other languages has led some linguistic researchers to make some supremely stupid claims. (laughs) And I checked the reference and it wasn't me. So so that, I'm thinking, has to be the best article that Specgram has ever published. You know, just from the standpoint of kind of statistical analysis, though, simply observing that... A lot of linguists have a lack of second language experience, and a lot of those linguists make supremely stupid statements. Doesn't really mean much because a lot of people make supremely stupid statements, right? And a lot of people have a lack of any significant L2 experience. So <laughs> this is kind of like observing that a lot of mammals that drink water develop mange. but you know not to be cited in this context i think is truly glorious oh it is it is and i'm just gonna enjoy it the fact that it actually said something about how the references were withheld to avoid embarrassing people i'm just really not even gonna act like that was there and i'm just gonna go back to the fact that my name did not appear right there in (laughs) reference 22 it's just a beautiful thing don't you think (laughs) it is it is yeah 
Trey, what's on your top list? All right, I've got a few. My favorite thing at Specgram is probably a choose-your-own-career in linguistics, which is a choose-your-own-style bit of fiction that allows the reader to experience several semi-realistic career paths in linguistics. And I think it has several awesome features. It's interactive fiction, which is always fun. It's got lots of science fiction-y branches to the story. It insults physicians and economists, and probably lawyers too, at least implicitly. (laughs) And then online, they read comments about how people play it and say how it reflects their real life and how it makes them sad. (laughs) And of course, the best thing about it is that I wrote it. (laughs) And I have a a fun little factoid. One of the branches in the story is about creating languages for the sci-fi channel. And apparently some people think that that's based on the life of our former compatriot, David J. Peterson. But in fact, it predates his adventures in professional conlanging, and I'm thinking maybe he read it as a set of instructions. <laughs> that probably got him started right there. Yeah. You will be getting a letter from him as soon as this he podcast o- comes out. He owes everything to you, Trey. I know it. Clearly, yeah. So my favorite real-world Specgram object is clearly the Speculative Grammarian Essential Guide to Linguistics, which is on sale now at fine booksellers. Uh, see specgram.com slash book for more details. <laughs> <laughs> wait, 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 wait. We're prohibited from advertising. <laughs> Not anymore. <laughs> My favorite Specgram cartoon is the Phonetics versus Phonology one in the cartoon theories of linguistics, though my favorite cartoon series is Linguistics Nerd Camp, which mm. um, is really awesome. And I think my favorite Specgram article is probably Shigudo Reluctantly by Sir Edmund C. Gladstone Chamberlain. Mm. And I like it because the story of the data involved is ridiculous. The story of the linguist involved is bittersweet. The story of the language speakers involved is parts depressing and parts triumphant. And it has the most awesome footnotes ever. <laughs> it's high on all of those scales. <laughs> well, I think I have three favorite articles and maybe a fourth one. Naturally, the book is right up there, but it's not an article. So that didn't qualify under the terms of the question, Trey. But anyway, <laughs> uh, <laughs> for articles, my absolute favorite article ever is a toss-up between the reinterpretation of some aspects of the Indo-European expansion by our compatriot Bill, in which he shows that Proto-Indo-European was actually just a language spoken by drunk people. That's a classic. And the other one that's right up there is a book review, the book review of Back to Basics. I think it's called by William J. Pinkerton Umlaut, maybe William D. Pinkerton Umlaut. Anyway, that was the first Specgram article in which we just gave ourselves over to wholehearted making fun of ad hominem attacks. And that one, <laughs> I was unable to record that for the podcast because I cannot read through it without bursting into laughter. I just think it's so uproariously funny. So those two are the top. And then I think my favorite of the ones I've ever written is the evidential complexity and language loss in Pinnacle Sherpa, because that's what evidential <laughs> systems ought to do in uh, media society. They really should become so complex that old people can't speak them. <laughs> and the language should be left only to the youngest speakers who are the only ones that can master the evidential systems. So I think that's my favorite of the Keith, the I'd like to point out that based on what older people older than me forward to me on Facebook and email, the ability to handle evidential concepts does appear to drop off by itself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> See, it's so realistic. <laughs> well, did we leave out any favorites that anyone thought of and didn't get to mention? No. We've pretty much dredged all the way down to the bottom. <laughs> <laughs> I would point out, too, that if you look at the Specgram book, the book itself 
is actually hundreds of rectangular tables. <laughs> they're disguised as pages, but they're really <laughs> rectangular tables with carefully positioned elements. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's what we're about here, folks. Rectangular tables. They just about prove everything we really know. It's science. <laughs> and if you don't believe it, haka nuka nuka. <laughs> All right. I think maybe that's all the time we have for Language Made Difficult. Thanks to our guest, Madalena, for hanging out with us. Thank you. Thank you all. And join us next time when we'll have a special episode focusing on focus and in which we will raffle off a Ford Focus. I want to be there. Wow. <laughs> oh, we're always claiming things that never happen. That's true. <laughs> I'm trying to finish up a chapter that I'm writing, and it's like passing an intellectual kidney stone. <laughs> It's cryptoantanoclasm. <laughs> wow, that was a great war cry to pick up my phone and hear, it's crypto. What was that? Do that again. That was awesome. Cryptoantanoclasm. It's the fanciest <laughs> term for pun I could find was puns are antanoclastic. Antanoclastic. And I mean, that was deliberately looking for the longest possible Greek rhetorical term, right? right. And if you can put crypto in front of it. <laughs> I'm putting that on my CV when I go up for full professor. I'm just going to have to do something about crypto antenna class. I can't even say it. So it must be important. <laughs> it needs to be stopped. <laughs> <laughs> you need to wear an opera cape when you use it and have a reverb on whatever you're doing. Knock, knock. Who's there? Two. To who? No, to whom? Ah! <laughs> okay. Oh, my goodness. That just made me really sad. <laughs> Stop right. But I will story. tell it all day tomorrow, just so you know. <laughs> this is where you should hakanuka nuka on him. I should hakanuka nuka him. Um, um, so knock, good. knock. Who's there? Control freak. Okay, now you say control freak who? <laughs> Are my intros too long? This one's even longer. <laughs> Is it okay? Uh, well, I'll just do it. Okay. Ready? So I was keeping score. <laughs> I won! Oh, come on. <laughs> yeah. uh, if we take out all the votes for ourselves, um, I still won! <laughs> <laughs> I didn't choose any of yours. No, you didn't. So much for Keith's inner subjective scoring rate. Well, the absolute best strategy is to have the web page that is the reference to the Journal of Recursive Citation Studies <laughs> with a link that, when clicked, takes you to itself. Nice. It has an impact factor of infinity. After I reduplicate, what do I do? Um, oh, I always fuzz out after reduplication. It's a thing I do. <laughs> If you put that in the outtakes, you're in trouble. <laughs> Which is probably going in the outtakes. Actually, I had something planned here and it fell out of my head. So we're going to have to edit this. <laughs> no, let's just leave it that way. <laughs> Crypto-antaticism. <laughs> <laughs>